All righty. Good morning, Ridgepoint Church. How are you doing this morning? Good. Man, I have loved the energy the last couple of weeks up here as we begin the message. Uh, even on kind of an overcast day, it seems like there's a lot of energy this morning. We're really glad you're here as we're in week two of a series called Distracted because we all kind of face distractions in life. We'll get to all of that in a second, but here's a couple things I'm going to ask because we're kind of in the summer months. We know a lot of people on vacation. I actually had a chance real quick right before I came up on the stage to check our, our Facebook live feed. If you don't know, we're broadcasting all of our services live on Facebook, and there are a bunch of people interacting on Facebook, and that's awesome. We know a lot of people on vacation, but as we get back, this has been the shortest summer I can ever remember. Like, it is hard to imagine. Teachers are returning back to school this week. I know some, we have some teachers in the crowd that are not really excited about that, but teachers go back to school this week. Students are right behind this. It's been such an incredibly fast summer. But, and we're going to share this kind of later on, but as we get ready to wrap up the summer here at Rich Point Church, we'll be getting ready to go back to two services in a short time. But a couple of things I'm going to ask you to do. Number one is, I've heard so many comments about how much people enjoyed being together for one service and having everyone together and seeing some people that you knew from the community that didn't even know that you went to Rich Point Church. And, and that's a great part of that, but we also want to make space to be able to reach more people. And so as you go back to two services, two things I'm going to ask you to do. Number one is to continue to have that energy. I love walking this Sunday morning and to feel that energy and then to get up and say, how's everybody doing? And to have this audible response and just the energy that's in the room. I love that. And number two, we want to be able to create space so we can invite friends out. So not just when we launch back in September, but also just right now, invest in people's lives to make a difference. Because ultimately, as we talk about this idea of being distracted, God has us all on, on mission. And really our biggest mission that we have as followers of Jesus is to make him known. And we get distracted with, with life, with, with stuff that's going on, and sometimes we forget that that should be a priority in our life. So invest in people's lives, invite them to be a part of what God's doing, tell them about this, your story and how, God is, has, how far God has brought you, but be a part of that. But as I mentioned, we're in week two of Distracted. Last week we talked about kicking off this series. We're looking at the book of, of Nehemiah. Who prior to this series knew a whole lot about the book of Nehemiah? Not a lot. Not a lot. Okay, that's awesome. This is actually one of my favorite books to, to read and to study. Uh, so I'm kind of glad we're going through this. We're talking about being distracted because every one of us knows what it's like to be distracted. And we said two big statements taking away from last week is, number one, if you're a follower of Jesus, God has a specific plan for your life. That means there's a specific plan for you. It isn't for anybody else. It isn't for JJ or for Chris or your small group leader or even other members of your family. But God has a very specific plan. There's something that you're supposed to be doing. And the second part of that is that if God has a specific plan for our lives, number two, that most followers of Jesus never realize what that one thing is. For Nehemiah, it took him quite some time, and that's fine. But it took him quite some time to realize. We picked up the story last week. We talked about this a little bit. But Nehemiah was actually part of, 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 the, of the Jewish people who had been in exile. And he's part of the Babylonian captivity. And he's about a thousand miles away from what was really his home city. Though he hadn't been there himself, what was really his home city. And as the Jewish people start to return back to Jerusalem, they return in three different waves. And Nehemiah is part of that last wave that moves back to Jerusalem. But as he's getting ready to move back, not aware of what's going on, he gets a report from his family. And he gets a report. He says, I want to find out how are things back in Jerusalem. And he gets this report. Things aren't going very well. There's a lot of shame in the community. 
The walls are torn down. The gates are burned. It just is, 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 there's desolation. It's not good. And the response of Nehemiah, though he's a thousand miles away, though it's not where he grew up and where he lived, his response, once he realizes what his one thing is, his response is to break down in tears and to fast and to pray and to plan. And I asked this question last week because Nehemiah starts to realize this is my one thing. This is why I'm created. Now, I don't believe that God's revealing that, that one thing to us throughout our whole life. It took to this moment in time for Nehemiah to realize what that one thing is. But once he realized what that one thing is, it so became because he realized this is my chance to, to fulfill my God-given vision, and I want to go all in on this thing. And so this vision drove him to tears. And so I asked this last week. When was the last time that we had a task or we had a mission that became so important to us that, that it reduced us to tears, that we hit the, the floor on our knees just, just sobbing before God, saying, God, I believe that this is supposed to happen. And then Nehemiah prays at the end of Nehemiah chapter 1. He prays, God, allow your servant to be used. I want to be a part of this. I believe so much in this mission that I want to be a part of this. So when was the last time that we knew, man, God, I believe that you're up to something, and I believe that this is it. And God, I'm going to pray for you to give me favor because I want to be a part of that task. And so he said last week that the main reason why we get distracted is because, number one, we never realize what that task is. For most of us, if we realize what the number one thing is, we're going to start to work towards that task. So as much as I believe that God desires to reveal that plan to us, there's an enemy that's trying to seek to, to steal, kill, and destroy us from that plan. And so he's going to try to distract us. And the number one way he's going to distract us is by never letting us realize, man, why is it that I've been created? God, what's my mission? What is it that I'm supposed to do? But once we start to realize what that thing is, because Nehemiah realizes it, and once we realize what that one thing is that I'm supposed to do, then distractions come from different sources. Some of the distractions we talk about today are going to come from within, and others come from outside of us. And so today we kind of turn the corner a little bit on the series, and we talk about distractions that we face. And I want to begin with a very simple question. How many of you think that you're really good at multitasking? Who think they have multitasking down? Awesome. Awesome. Who would admit there's no way I'm a terrible multitasker? All right, we're going to put that to the test this morning. But before we do that, we live in a society of multitaskers. It seems like we don't want to do one thing and focus on one thing. And so we try to do multiple things at once. Maybe it is uh, you're sitting there doing homework and you're watching TV. Or, or, or maybe it is that you're at work and you have to have the radio on to be able to focus on something else. Uh, or maybe it is that you're walking and trying to text on your phone at the same time, which we often don't do so well. And we'll see that by looking at this video right here.
Now, would anybody be bold enough to admit that they've done something similar to that before? Has anybody ever, like, tripped and fallen while they're texting? Uh, I, actually, I, I did that one time. I was working an event, and I was on a planner. I didn't realize how high the planner was because on one side it was really low, and on the other side it dropped down quite a bit. And I was sending something out for the event, and, and I stepped down. I thought it was like a six-inch step, and it was like a two-foot step. And, and so I, I kind of caught myself and rolled a little bit, but it was, it was embarrassing. But here's the thing. I never walked up on a bear. Like, how do you not realize there's a bear in front of you? I'm like, the dude is walking, kind of texting, and he comes within feet of a big, huge bear. And I said, at least I have, have not done like that. How, how do we get so busy multitasking that we miss that? So, so I did some research on this topic of multitasking, because if we get distracted and those distractions come from within, often it's because we tend to work against ourselves. And so everybody should have gotten a piece of paper. Did everybody get a piece of paper when you got in this morning? I want you to pull that piece of paper out now, and you need a pen to go along with it, because we're going to do kind of a little social experiment this morning and see how good we are at multitasking. Now, for this purpose, if you have something hard to write on, it would probably be beneficial, not required. Um, but we're going to do something. In just a second, once everybody gets situated and you have your paper in front of you, uh, I'm going to ask you, does anybody need any, a paper? Anybody not get one that wants one? Anybody need one still? We need one up front here. We have a couple that need them still. If we get a couple people to help out, we're going to allow for all that to happen. And, and while we're doing that, I'm going to explain what we're going to do right here, right now. Is in just a second, this phrase is going to be up on the screen. I'm going to ask you to write this phrase out. Go ahead and put it up there. The phrase says this, I am a great multitasker. And then there's underneath it the line, the numbers 1 through 20. And so what we're going to do, once, don't start, don't get ahead of yourself, otherwise you're going to mess this whole experiment up. Uh, but all you're doing is you're writing across the top line, I am a great multitasker. And across the second line, I want you to write in sequence the numbers 1 through 20. Does everybody understand that? Does everybody have a piece of paper? Anybody not understand or need paper? All right, then here's what we're going to do. In just a second, when I say go, I want everyone writing together, I am a great multitasker. And the numbers 1 through 20. Ready? <laughs> Set. Go. Five seconds in. Ten seconds in. Fifteen seconds in. Twenty seconds in. 25 seconds in. 30 seconds in. We'll give you five more seconds. 35 seconds. I think most people are probably done by now. Did, everybody, did anybody not get finished after 35 seconds? All right. We're going to try to do this again. Only this time when you do it, I want you to write one letter on the top and then one number underneath. So you're going to write I in the number 1, A in the number 2. Now, when you get to the numbers 10, you write out 10. You don't write 1 and 0. So when you get to 10, you write 10. And you're going to go back and forth, letter and number. There's, there's 20 letters and there's 20 numbers. So you're going to go back and forth from one to the other. Ready, set, go. Five seconds in. 10 seconds in, 
15 seconds in. 20. 25. 30. This is where we stopped it last time at 35. Keep going, keep going. 40. 45. 50 seconds. 55 seconds. 60 seconds. We're going to give 10 more seconds. not done stop now now who took more time writing the second one than the first one did anybody take less time doing it like you really worked at it that's awesome. I, I tried this a couple times i tried this with multiple different people would anybody be bold enough to admit that trying to go back and forth you actually made a mistake yeah like here's what happens we think we're good at multitasking but actually, we're writing out the same amount of work. We're writing out the same numbers of, of letters and numbers. And yet, almost everybody in here said it took us longer to go back and forth to switch tasks. And even amidst that, sometimes we messed up. I think sometimes maybe we wrote down the wrong letter. Or sometimes even we wrote a number down at the bottom when it, or a number at the top when it should have been at the bottom. And, and so what we learn is that really we're not multitasking. We're not doing two things at once, but we're what scientists call switch tasking. We're going back and forth from one thing to another, which is why last week we said when there's a, an interruption at work every 11 minutes, and it takes us 35 minutes to get back focused on that task, it's because for the most part we're not good at, at really switch tasking. Now, if you're playing music in the background, they call that kind of back tasking. It's not really anything you're focusing on. But when you're trying to focus on two things at once... We're really not good at that. We, we think we are, but we're not good at that. And then we have this God-sized vision that he gives us. We have this thing that we're supposed to grasp with both hands and get after and say, God, this is what I want to be on. But we start to focus on things around us that are not nearly as important, but because we think, well, we live in this ADD culture and we have to have multiple things going on at once, we think, man, I have to do this Otherwise, I can't focus, and the truth is, it's actually taught us to be bad focusers. When it's small tasks, it might be important. When it's a huge God-given vision, it can keep us off track for the rest of our lives. And so we're going to pick up today in Nehemiah chapter 2, where really the rubber starts to, to meet the road when it comes to Nehemiah's vision. So Nehemiah chapter 2, we start to see that Nehemiah has had this vision birth inside of him. And we said two things last week. We said Nehemiah is a spiritual person. He's fasted and he's prayed and he's wept before God. But he's also a practical person. And so for probably for months, he's been sitting here coming up with a plan. He's been sitting there figuring in his head, how can I do this? How could, God, God it has to be you accomplishing through, this through me because I'm not big enough for this task. But God, if, if this is going to work out, what are the steps necessary for us to get there. And for some, that would have seemed like a futile effort. When we have this big God-sized vision that seems really robust and beyond our means, people look at us and say, that dream is so crazy. 
Why are you even coming up with a plan for it? But Nehemiah, in the secrecy of his own environment, begins to come up with a plan. He says, God, I believe for this to happen, it's going to take you. But I want to start to put together the plan, the action plan it would take for this to actually come to fruition. And so we pick up in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 1. This is the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. This is the king that Nehemiah works for. When wine was before him, by the way, we said at the end of Nehemiah chapter 1, he was the cupbearer to the king. That meant that literally he bore the cup of the king. He would, because there's so many people who would want to kill the king, he would go and test anything that was given to the king to make sure if he lived, the king would feel like pretty secure that he's going to be able to live. And, and, and one of the things we've, as they studied the life of Artaxerxes, he was good at what he did because Artaxerxes reigned for 40 years. And they found that he died of natural causes, which was really, really unlike many of the kings of his area. This is very, very unusual. So Nehemiah was good at, at his job. And, and when wine was before him, he says, I took the wine and I gave to the king. And he said, now, not, now I had not been sad in his presence. He said, up until this point, I've been praying, I've been planning, but I know that my life is dependent upon me being happy before the king. I said this last week. This king liked to be surrounded by people who were happy, had a happy countenance before them because he wanted to be surrounded by people who, who were enjoying life. But even more importantly, he wanted his cupbearer to be enjoying life because if, if he had a sad countenance, if he didn't look right, the king would start to wonder, wait a minute, you're drinking this stuff before I am and you're not doing well or we know Nehemiah is fasting, so you're taking all this stuff before me and you're not looking all that healthy, that doesn't bode well for me. And so up until this point, even though all the stuff is going on behind the scenes, Nehemiah is making sure before the king, i got to act like everything's really, really good. So it says here that, that, that up until this point, he had, been he, had, he had not been sad in his presence. He'd been very careful about that. But here things change. Because in verse 2 it says, And the king said to me, now he's starting to reveal this to him, why is your face sad, seeing as you're not sick? I mean, you say you're not sick and everything's okay, but why is your face so sad? Why do you have that sad countenance? There is nothing but sadness in, uh, of the heart. He says, this is all I see. All I see is sadness of your heart. Something's not right. The king had gotten to know Nehemiah so well. He says, Nehemiah, I know something's wrong, so tell me, what is it? Nehemiah is about to, in the next couple of verses, he's about to face what I think are the three biggest internal distractions we face. And we have this big, huge vision that God gives us. The three biggest internal struggles that we face are the, are the things that Nehemiah is about to face. And so here's this, this person, this king. Now, Nehemiah, is, as cupbearer, he was, he was taking the the people of Israel, children of Israel, have been taken slaves of, of, of the rulers here. And so he as a cupbearer had a high position, but he basically is a slave to the king. And the king could, if he wanted to, just for being sad in his presence, could have wiped him off the face of the earth. And so Nehemiah knows as the king asked this question, there's a lot of the line. I've been working on this vision for months. I have an action plan, and I'm about to share that action plan. As, as, as best we know, Nehemiah didn't have a lot of confidants in his area that he could go to and bounce this idea off of. So for a couple of months, he's been working on this, this, this vision that he believes God's given him for months. 
and being silent about it. And now the king comes, says, says, Nehemiah, like, what's going on? Why are you so sad? And he knows, well, this is the first time I'm going to share this vision. And, and I probably didn't wake up this morning thinking that was going to be the case. And so I'm about to share this vision, and, and he could laugh at me, which I think most of us, when we share big visions, we're afraid people are going to laugh at us. Like, the death of the vision would almost be worse than the death of the individual. But Nehemiah is about to share this vision, and he says, I was very much afraid. When we're realizing God-given dreams in our life, the first distraction that you and I face internally is a distraction of fear. Nehemiah says, man, the king came and started asking me what's going on. And I realized that I'm about to share the vision for the very first time. And it could result in the death of the vision, or it could result in the death of the individual. I'm not sure which, but I know either one of those outcomes is possible. So he says, I was very much afraid, but the fear didn't stop him from realizing the vision. For a lot of us, if we ever figure out what that one thing is, we say, man, I'd love to accomplish it, but there's no way. I don't have enough resources. I don't have enough intelligence. I don't have enough people on board to see that dream realized. Well, Nehemiah has been working on those details behind the scenes. And now that fear hits, he can either say, king, nothing, everything's fine. Or he could start to lay out the vision. So the king asked, and he says that he, he had this fear inside of him. But verse 3, he responds, and he says this. I said to the king, let the king live forever. I'm going to butter the king up first, because he could kill me. So let me begin by saying, let the king live forever. But why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. So he begins saying, first let me share why this vision is so important. Let, let me share why my countenance is down. Because the city where my ancestors come from, it's lying in ruins. And so I've heard this report, I've gotten this report, report and, and I'm saddened by that king. And so in verse 4, the king begins to transition the conversation. And he says this. The king said to me, what are you requesting? And here's where Nehemiah starts to realize that he has to face that fear. Because up until this point, like there's not been anything, there's not been an ask, there's not been a sharing of the vision. He says, okay, you want to know what's wrong? Jerusalem's been destroyed. My, my people are, are shamed. And I'm just kind of down about that. Like, that could have been the end of the conversation, but the king says, okay, well, I, I, have, I could help with that, but what are you requesting? And verse 4, we move from, 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 this, from this idea of, of, of fear as, as the main thing that distracts us, moving from, from the idea of fear to the idea of, of doubt. The king asks, what are you requesting of me? What, what can we do about this? The end of verse 4, it says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, up until this point, repeatedly, Nehemiah had been praying. But he realizes this, this is it. This is the moment. Like the king could have said, oh, you're sad. We'll talk about it another day. But the king says, no, right now, okay, what is it you're requesting? How can we help alleviate this? So I picture this, that Nehemiah had been praying for some time. But here, right before his first chance to share that vision. He takes a deep breath. 
He prays silently to God. God, right now, this is my chance to share this vision. I believe you've laid this on my heart. I believe this is what I'm supposed to do. He takes another deep breath, and he says, well, King, since you asked. And he begins to, for the first time, share that vision. Now, I'm going to read through this. We're going to walk through it in just a second. But I'm going to read through the whole thing at once. The king asked, what are you requesting? So he prayed to the God of heaven, verse 5. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him. I noticed the queen is there beside him. I think that Nehemiah is hoping maybe have the woman on the side, he'd be a little bit softer about this whole thing. And so the queen is sitting next to him. And the king says, how long will you be gone and when you, will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I'd given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the, king, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And it says, and the king granted me what I had asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. So let me share what's happening right here. We're going to walk through exactly the steps. Nehemiah had come up with an action plan. There's probably seven or eight things that had to take place, but four that were directly related to this conversation. He said, man, when I finally have a chance to start to share this vision with the king, here's what I'm going to ask. Now, Nehemiah was a slave to the king. So he said, the first thing, king, that I have to ask, you want to ask what, what you can do. Okay, number one, let me go and work on this city, which, by the way, prior to this, Jerusalem was an enemy city of this king. So he's going to a king saying, I know that, that I'm your servant. I know that I'm bound to you, but I'm going to ask you to set me free and set me free to go rebuild the walls of a city that used to be an enemy to you. Like, king, are you okay with that? And the king's response was to say, okay, well, how long are you planning on being gone? And Nehemiah at this point says, I got my foot in the door. Like the king, he could have killed me. He hasn't killed me yet. Let me keep going on with the vision. So he gets the foot in the door and the king says, at least I'm pondering it. Maybe it's just my, that my wife is sitting next to me. But I got my, uh, Nehemiah says, I got the foot in the door. The king hasn't killed me yet. So it begins by saying, King, would you, would you free your servant up to go and do this thing? Then he says, oh, by the way, since, while you're pondering all of this, while you're asking these questions, I don't have the financial resources to do this. So would you mind funding this project for me? And as the king starts to ponder that, he says, oh, and, and hold on, king, while you're thinking about that, since you haven't killed me yet, let me ask one more thing. Um, I'm going to be traveling a thousand miles through some enemy areas the governors there aren't going to believe me necessarily. So would you give me a letter providing safe conduct? I'm sure the king looked and said, is there anything else? And he said, yeah, actually, since you're asking, I don't have the timber, actually, to rebuild the walls of the city. So do you mind allowing me to go to your personal forest and be given the wood to rebuild the walls? Now, now I can't help but think that as Nehemiah built this vision up in his mind, he said, man, it would be incredible if this worked out. It would be incredible if this worked out. It would be incredible if this worked out and this worked out. And if we went a little bit further, he says, now I have to travel to Jerusalem. By the way, nobody over there knows of this plan at all. 
So I got to go there, and they have to think I'm not crazy, and they have to buy into the vision, and, and, and I have to get enough people there to start working on this to make all this, this happen. But I'll figure that out when I get there. If I could just convince the king, I'm pretty far along in this vision. Now, if any of these four things doesn't happen, if Nehemiah comes to this king, would, would you let me be free to go? And the king said, yeah, absolutely. And would you help me out? Yeah, and I'll give you safe passage, but you're not touching my forest. Then the vision's going to crumble. Or if he said, I'll let you go, but I'm not going to give you safe passage, or I'm not going to help fund this whole thing, it could have been the end of the vision. So I can't help but wonder, as Nehemiah starts to share this vision for the very first time, they start to laugh himself at the insanity of all this stuff happening. Like, what's the chance? God, I believe you've given me this vision. I've been working on this plan for quite some time. But God, what's the chances that all of these things would actually line up? Like, if I look at each one, each one might seem possible. But if I look at all of them together... If I look at everything that has to take place, it would seem like for all of those things to take place, it would be impossible. And impossible is why most people never realize their God-given vision. Impossible, because we look at this task, and we say, man, that seems crazy. There's no way I could ever accomplish that. And God's in the business of accomplishing the impossible. And impossible is why most people never realize they're God-given tasks. They say, well, I'd love to be a part of that, but I could never, I could never lead that. I could never, I could never get enough financial resources, or I, I could never get enough people on board, or I could never, I'm not talented enough to do this. And so for a lot of us, we have this, this God-given task. And the crazy thing is, it might not even be something huge like Nehemiah is a part of. It might just be, man, I want to fix my family. Like, I want to make sure my family is doing things right. And we get so distracted from that task because we look, and at times, fixing our family can seem extremely impossible. And so we look at that, and the fear starts to give way to doubt and God says, listen, this is the God-sized vision that I have for you. And if you think that fixing your family isn't a God-sized vision, then you're missing the point of this. It doesn't have to be something so extremely huge and noteworthy that it's actually recorded in Scripture. It could be just going through our day-to-day life and saying, God, I believe that you've given me this vision. This is who I'm supposed to be. This is why I'm here. And as I start to verbalize that vision to friends that are around me, there can start to be some, some stares and some, some laughing at the things that we say. And so as we verbalize it, sometimes we face doubt. We face, man, I don't, I don't know that if I verbalize that, Nehemiah's going to the king who could have beheaded him. And as he's saying these things, he's probably in the back of his mind saying, on paper, this whole idea sounded really good. But now that I'm talking to someone, flesh and blood in front of me who could take my life, all of a sudden this whole thing seems crazy. But God is in the business of doing that which is impossible. A while back, I read a book by Andy Stanley called Visioneering. And in Visioneering, Andy Stanley said this. From the outset, just about every God-sized vision appears to be impossible. At the outset... When the whole thing is being b- beginning, when the whole thing is, is starting, 
He says, at the very beginning, every God-sized vision seems to be impossible. And when we start to verbalize that vision, whatever it is that God's laid on your heart, that you're supposed to be doing it. And, and last week, we kind of emphasized this, but we've got to make sure that it's, from, that it's from God, that I know for sure that God has already said it, or he's, he's communicated that clearly enough to me, that I know that this vision is from God. But once I know what that God-sized vision is, that from the outside, just about everything that's a God-sized vision appears to be impossible. But it says at the very end of, of this section of Nehemiah 2, the king granted me what I asked. The king granted me everything that I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. See, he prayed at the very end of Nehemiah chapter 1, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant the prayer of your servant who delights to fear your name and give success to your servant today. He prayed specifically. Well, some people look at that and say, isn't that kind of arrogant? Isn't that cocky praying for your own success? But he says, no, because I know for sure this is God's vision for my life. And we sit there and say, I know for sure this is God's vision for my family. And so we pray saying, God, give us success only because I believe that this plan is coming from you then we know that that is not a, a cocky prayer or an arrogant prayer. We're saying, God, I believe this is your vision, and I'm going to pray specifically for there to be success on your servant today because I believe this is what we're supposed to do. So at the end of this passage in verse 8, it says, The king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of God was upon me. Why? Because for months I've been praying, God, give me favor. For months I've been saying, God, I believe this task is so huge. There's no way I could accomplish this myself. And so, God, give me favor in this area. And the king responds, and he does so. He says, this is why it happened. He says, it wasn't because I was a smooth orator. It wasn't because I'd had a good relationship with the king. He says that this whole thing came to fruition. The king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. We'll pick up in verse 9. And we go from, from facing our fears to facing our doubts to the third thing, facing our insecurities. Verse 9. It says, I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. He says, I have safe passage. Here you go. Now the king has sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Next week we deal with dealing with distractions from outside. These are some people who we're going to see pop up again. But he says, the king sent me officers of the army and, and horsemen. But when Sanballat the, the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So we start to see, and we'll pick this up more next week, but we start to see Sanballat and Tobiah are two people who are going to consistently produce a distraction in Nehemiah's life when it comes to rebuilding the walls. But it says, we'll get to that next week, because in verse 11, So I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. Now, he probably has a large crew with him. But as he goes for this first inspection of the walls, he doesn't take a bunch of people. He takes just a couple people he confided in. He says, I just took a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. He's not shared the vision outside of these couple of conversations. There is no animal with me but the one which I rode on. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring. And to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem. And they were broken down, and its gates had been destroyed by fire. 
Then I went to the fountain gate into the king's pool. But there was not even room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people who are to do the work. So he had doubt already going to talk to the king. But now for the first time, he travels to Jerusalem. He takes his thousand-mile journey. And, and there's a lot of fanfare. People are wondering what he's doing. And so he stays there for three days. And finally, after three days, he says, okay, let's slip out at night when no one else is going to be out there. And let's go assess how bad things really are. See, it's one thing to get a report from somebody else about how bad things are. But it's another thing entirely to walk that road ourselves. We've had the privilege here at Ridgepoint Church taking multiple trips to Honduras and Dominican Republic and, and to on some of those trips actually walk on the trash dump where people live and work. And, and we try in, in verbiage to be able to describe, here's what that is like, here's, here's what that... But until you walk on it, the, the words that we use pale in comparison to the actual experience. We can describe it as, as best we can, but until we experience that for ourselves, it's sometimes hard to comprehend. That's exactly what Nehemiah is going through. He says, man, there was this report, but until I came here myself and saw the damage, until I came here and my animal can't even fit through some of the gates because everything is so dilapidated, I can't help but wonder, as, as he sat there that night touring the damage and seeing what had taken place, if, if insecurity didn't start to rise up inside of him. To say, man, look at the task in front of us, and the task, as much as on paper, it seemed like it was really, hey, I know this is tough, but I think I could do this. When I walk the gates and I see the disrepair, and I see especially the shame that I've encountered this week, seeing the people and, and their confidence is down, and, and they don't want to be a part of this, like, like, like this, this task seems overwhelming. And as a leader, when the task seems overwhelming, insecurity starts to creep in, and you start to ask the question, well, can I really accomplish this? Nehemiah doesn't have a large entourage with him. He just has an animal and a few people. And they inspect the damage and they walk, maybe walk slowly looking at how bad things are, contemplating, can we really do this? Nehemiah faces the fear. Nehemiah faces the doubt. Nehemiah faces the insecurity. And up until this point, he's not yet vision cast. Here's why I'm here. But in the next few verses, he does just that. Up until now, we just read that it said that he had not yet told the Jews, the priests, and nobles, the officials, and the rest who are to do the work. So everybody's there just kind of hanging out doing life. They don't know why Nehemiah is there. They don't know, man, we're going to get to work and we're going to rebuild this thing. And Nehemiah just inspects. He says, I've not yet shared the vision, but I'm about to. And in the next couple of verses... He starts to give this incredible motivational speech. Like this is William Wallace and Braveheart. This is the president in Independence Day. This is, man, cue the music. I want to have all the emotion. And he starts to speak to the children of Israel. And he says this about what's taking place. He says, listen to me. You see the trouble that we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates 
have been ruined by fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that we may no longer be mocked. The hand of God has been upon me and the king has shown me favor. And the people that are there, the people who just days before had been living in shame, thinking there's no hope, our city's destroyed, we're, we're being taken advantage of, and, and even old people are taking advantage of us. They're sitting there just days before living in shame, thinking there's no hope. And they begin to listen to the speech of Nehemiah. And their response is to respond and say, come, let us rebuild the walls. And then Nehemiah turns his attention to the enemies who are at the gate, to the naysayers who sat and mocked. We'll hear more about them next week. But he turns his attention to them. He turns to his critics and he says this, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. But as for you, you naysayers, as for you, you enemies, you critics, you have no claim on this land. See, when we start to share that vision, when we start to deal with our own insecurities, we start to deal with our own fears, there are going to be people who outside, and there's going to be our own mind inside of us that are trying to distract us from that vision and say, you are not going to be capable of accomplishing this vision. There's no way. There's going to be those naysayers that try to get into our mind, and sometimes we are our own worst critic. And our response has to be Nehemiah's response. And he says, but as for you naysayers, as for you critics, you have no claim on this land. I'm doing something right now that God has ordained for me to do, and you yourself have no claim on this land. Our first experience with distraction comes from within. For some of us right now, we've already realized what it is we're supposed to do. For some, it might be getting your life right. For some, you know, man, I've, I've been living way the wrong way. I've never given my life to Christ. I've been fighting him tooth and nail, trying to make sure that doesn't happen. And there's enemies and there are critics saying, you're not good enough. You're not strong enough. God could never love you. And God says, but I do. Is this is what you're supposed to do. And our response to the enemy has to be to say, you have no claim on this land. For others, you're, you're a believer this morning. You're a follower of Jesus, and either you've never realized what that task is, or you've realized it, but you've never been bold enough to pray for it, to weep over it, to fast on it. You've never been bold enough to start to plan, what would this look like? Like, if I were actually going to accomplish this, what would this look like? See, there's a boldness about our life when we start to take action. There's a boldness about our life when we say, God, I'm going to pray that you'd find favor with your servant. I'm going to fast because I care so much about this. And I'm going to start to plan believing that this action is going to take place. So for some of us, it's planning and preparing. It has to be happening right now. So when we start to verbalize that vision, we know that we, this is the route that we're supposed to be taking. Know for sure the vision is from God. Plan and prepare for that and do not be distracted from that task. Let's pray together. Father, I believe fully this morning that we have people right here in our midst. We have people maybe even watching online 
that are struggling with your call, not that they don't know what your call is. God, sometimes you've made a calling very clear in their life. But the fear of their life has overwhelmed them up until this point. That they haven't trusted you enough to, play, to pray, to plan, and to prepare for what you have for them, for that vision to be realized. God, I pray for that person this morning that you would give them a boldness right now to come before you if it, if it leads to tears and, and weeping, believing in this so much. God, I pray that you break them to that point. God, if it's planning and preparing these to take place, God, allow them to take those steps with boldness, believing that this is your vision and that as long as you show them favor, they're going to accomplish that vision. God, give them the boldness to do that, to face their fears to face their doubts, thinking there's no way this could ever be accomplished. There's too many things that have to line up to face those doubts and to face those insecurities, believing, God, that your task and, and your empowering of that task is way more powerful than the doubts and insecurities that we face today. God, get us beyond the fear. Get us beyond the doubt. Get us beyond the insecurity to a spot of resting and knowing that we're going to accomplish your vision, not because we're great people, not because we're super talented, because we're none of those things, but God, you are. Allow us to trust in your sovereignty and your providence to see these things happen in this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.